How we envisage a problem leads to how we look for solutions. Public comment on transport solutions is, understandably, based on applied assumptions of what the problem is. That's not surprising. But this approach spills over into so-called research, which, to my mind, is often not open-minded inquiry, but rather compiling a justification for a preconceived idea. It's not aiming to discover a new way of looking at things, it's compiling information for a polemic. Dr Alexa Bell-Bosk, whose PhD is in transport, is a senior lecturer in the Public Transport Research Group of the Institute of Transport Studies at Monash University. Her research focuses on the changing habits of young people, transport psychology, human factors in public transport and the use of emerging technologies in transport. Along with a colleague, Kelsey Ralph, she has written a paper titled I'm Multimodal, Aren't You? How Egocentric Anchoring Biases Experts' Perceptions of Travel Patterns. It takes up the word heuristic, which is defined as enabling a person to discover or learn something for themselves. It is any approach to problem-solving, learning or discovery. Our perceptions, and therefore our approaches, are critical topics. Dr. Del Bosque joins us on the line. Alexa, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Now, it's important to take an approach of understanding what we initially think in order to say where that might be leading us in our research. You were looking at some factors for transport planners, weren't you? Indeed. Uh, we were interested, my colleague and I, in um, a lot of research recently about millennial generation and some assumptions that researchers and practitioners were making about what millennials were like and how they traveled. That was the inspiration for this research because we were wondering if some of those assumptions were because of the personal experience of the people who were interested in the topic. I have a background in psychology and I know that it's it's very easy to draw from our own personal experiences and our own thoughts and feelings when we try to think about what other people are doing and thinking. Yes, it's almost the mistake we make when we say, I know how you feel, which to many people is, no, you don't. You haven't really come to grips with that, isn't it? And and, mm-hmm. and so we get a snippet of what the millennials might be thinking and we use that in reinforcement. In fact, I think there's a psychological term for that, isn't there? Uh, there is. Uh, it's It's got a nice technical term, which is using egocentric anchoring to confirm uh, what we think other people are thinking. So, I mean, let's be fair. It's really hard to know what other people are thinking and feeling and doing. You know, it's a big, wide, complex world out there. So we use lots of heuristics, as you mentioned. They're mental shortcuts to just work out what's going on in the world around us without being crippled with indecision at every turn. Uh, And one common heuristic is, okay, I'm not quite sure what you're thinking or feeling, so I'll start with what I know and then adjust for based on what I think you know. And so quite often it then becomes trigger communication, really, doesn't it? Someone might say, well, I caught the bus, and whoosh, in you go, well, buses are this, 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 and this. It's it's Mm -hmm. triggered something in my mind, not necessarily taken up where they might be coming from. It's very common. It's not just transport professionals. You know, we're all human. We all make mistakes. But I believe that transport professionals are not immune to this bias either. You use the word ego, but of course you're not talking about necessarily, although in some cases it's clearly the case, of arrogance, really. You're just talking about where people are quite genuinely coming from. Exactly. Just egocentrism in psychology 
isn't about Freud or ego or arrogance. It's just about starting with your own perspective, your personal perspective when you're trying to understand the world. So what perspectives did you find transport planners were coming from? Well, at least in our survey, and this was a, it was a transport planners in America, uh, and they were a mix of academics and practitioners. We found that they were more likely than the average American to be multimodal or to not have a car. They're more likely to kind of live in more city areas, less likely to be in regional or rural areas. And uh, especially those who were more multimodal or didn't drive uh, assumed that a larger proportion of Americans were like them. So when they, we asked them, what do you think the average American is traveling? They tended to slightly project just a bit. You know, it's not massive, but they, they did assume that Americans were a bit more like them than was the reality. If you're a transport planner, you're more likely to be working in the inner city, yet the inner city is, as I've talked about a lot, often totally overrated, still very important, but often overrated Mm. in its relative size. Indeed. And although this study was conducted in America, I wouldn't be surprised if you would see similar patterns in Australia where transport planners, public transport employees, they tend to live in the more inner city areas. That's their lived reality. If they're taking public transport, it's nice trains or trams. They're less likely to be out in the suburbs where that's just not an option and your only option is to drive. The interesting point you made too is that if I do catch a train, that may change my perception of travel time versus if I were to regularly capture a car. How how does that work? Our everyday transport experience colors what we think the problems and the issues and the needs are for our transport system. So if I'm in the inner city, I'm looking at the congestion there and I'm looking at the train and saying, oh, trains are great. I wish we had more of these more often. If I'm living far out in the suburbs, all I've got is a local bus. So, you know, it's a completely different set of of issues that you're dealing with and a different perspective on what you think the problems are and what the solutions are. If I go in a car, the travel time can often be the critical thing because in theory, and apart from talking on my phone, I'm caught up with that exercise. Yet if I go on a train, I might be able to read as well. So travel time might have a different perspective for uh, public transport users on general, and I'm not overplaying it, but that's the sort Mm -hmm. of impact that your own experience can have. Absolutely. And another interesting thing about travel time in cars versus public transport is uh, absolutely in cars, you are often focused on how long it takes to get to work. But if you're a regular public transport user, well, the time on the tram or the bus or the train might be not as important as, for example, how often that bus arrives or how often the tram departs. So if you're a decision maker trying to decide what's best for public transport and you've got a car perspective, you might think we need to make the buses faster. And if you're a public transport user, you might say, okay, faster is not that important. What's important is my bus only comes once an hour. Mm. Different perspectives on what the problems are. I was talking to uh, Professor Corin Mully, who was saying, yes, the real issue is often the availability and the spread of public transport Whereas quite often, particularly with rail systems, we often just really focus on the capacity. It is just such a wonderful carrying capacity, although even that itself can be compromised in many ways. But that becomes Mm -hmm. the key parameter, which almost justifies anything. Well, that's horses for courses. Absolutely, capacity is important when you're trying to move huge amounts of people into big inner city areas. 
But again, different perspective when you're out in the suburbs. It's not about capacity of the buses. It's about just getting people on the buses. It's about making sure people have at least a basic access to that service. Your work with millennials is very good. We often get one fact about them and again assume it means huge numbers of things. Mm-hmm. Millennials aren't getting their license as quickly as others, but that's not necessarily to say that they don't end up getting it eventually. Do we need to understand the real details and the real motivations about what they're doing? Absolutely. Now, I'm probably also guilty of this, that a few years ago, we got very excited about the millennials. They're taking longer to get their license. They're traveling differently. You know, are they going to be the savior of our transport system? But uh, we've recently had a bit of a reality check that, you know, inner city urban living millennials of a certain demographic that are taking a long time to finish schooling, taking gap years. Sure, they are taking their time getting a car, but there's a whole nother perspective on millennials where that's just not their case. That's not what they're going through. They're maybe struggling even to find a job in the first place, and they need that car to get to that job. Mm. So again, it's just different perspectives on, on the same problem. It goes back to where they are really at, of which transport, as we said, is really only a derived service rather Mm -hmm. than transport in itself, where we become a little myoptic about it from a supply side rather than a demand side. I think there is potentially one uh, difference in attitudes, though, of this generation, and that I do think the millennials do look at transport in a bit more utilitarian way, perhaps than past generations, Mm. that um, there was much more idolization of the car in the baby boomer generation. It it was who you were in society was reflected in what kind of car you drove. And there are still pockets of millennials that absolutely adore their cars, but I don't think it's quite as strong a thread as it has been in the past. I have a 16-year-old boy, let me assure Mm -hmm. you, that the notion of a car and what it might have represented to me as I was young is still alive and kicking in him. Mm -hmm. The point about that then is that we may be motivated by a range of different things. So it's not just a case of telling them you should do this for, I don't know, environmental reasons, even though that's a valid point. It's understanding what they're doing, why they're doing it, that will bring help us bring about solutions to bring about more sustainable outcomes? I think so. And, you know, the car, one part of the car that hasn't changed, by the way, is it is still the ultimate freedom for a young person. One of the easiest ways to get independence from your parents to be able to go and do what you want to do. But that independence, you know, if we could provide that same level of independence with public transport, I wonder if more millennials would be willing to put off relying on the car because they can get that freedom in another way. I think that's very important as we approach autonomous vehicles, which I think in many ways may be oversold and under-delivered in what they can ultimately do, because I think the image there is in that personal freedom to have extra time and to have the vehicle door to door, yet across the board is an unsustainable approach. We really are going to have to think about those sorts of ideas versus realities that are going to be part of the future transport system. Do you think that's something that we need to embrace? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if autonomous vehicles can deliver on 
providing even more freedom than the freedom machine of normal cars. Well, we already know from normal cars that that freedom comes at a cost to society, to the environment, to congestion. That's not going to go away by making the cars autonomous. You defined a previous definition of four basic types of transport, the car, love, other, and so on. One of them was trekkers. What did you mean by that? When we were defining what kind of mode use we saw in, in society, this is from my colleague in America, she defined how people traveled using the travel diary in a couple categories. And one was people who, car lovers or who drove for almost all their trips, multimodal who used different modes throughout the, the week, carless who didn't have a car, and then trekkers were similar to the car users, but they did a lot of long distance travel. So they maybe are super commuters or people in regional areas. Um, they had to just drive very long distances. A reality that to some days is often a sad reflection on our times. You talked about this approach. Should that lead us to how we think about government structure, government authorities? Mode-specific departments is almost seems to be inherently building in this bias to our approach that I have to fix those who drive rather than help those who want to travel? It seems to be moving in that direction in Victoria, at least, uh, with the move to Transport for Victoria, bringing together the Public Transport Organization and the Road Authority. And VicRoads itself does seem to, in recent years, have been spending a lot more time thinking about multimodal travel, not just roads, meaning cars. So at least in Victoria, seems to be making positive moves in that direction. In conclusion, then, our whole approach to transport, is there a strong need for us to step back from both our perceptions and the reality of where we're working and and start thinking about and discussing and being much more open-ended about what has been said rather than just trying to use one technical one-liner to prove a point mm -hmm. and by the way do we need to do that with the public more as well well that, that's what i was you, you gazumped me there um my takeaway from this research it just once again emphasizes the importance of community engagement in transport, of actually talking to the community and what they need and what they want, understanding their problems and using that information to help shape solutions along with the community. It's not easy. It takes a lot of time. It can be a big headache, but it is so important to making uh, outcomes that are going to be best for society. And our approach to the community there again, shouldn't be so supply-side driven. I've been to community consultations where they say, you know, would you like a tram or would you like a train or, you know, would you like this or that? And they, oh, yeah, 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 I'd love one of those. Rather mm -hmm. than necessarily sitting down saying, well, hang on, what are you doing? How are you doing? If you had this, how would you use it? I think we've taken our approach to community consultation, which Someone from Vic Roads the other day said, we've already got this decide and defend approach. I've, I've done mm -hmm. all the research. Here's the answer. Uh, let me tell you why it's good for you. But equally, mm -hmm. it, you don't want it from the other side as well. Just tell me, you know, the mode you want and without asking, how is yeah. you going to use it? I like the approach that Infrastructure Victoria has taken recently, which is when they've done their community consultation, they actually focused on the problems that the community sees in their infrastructure, including transport. Mm. And then they go and say, okay, these are the problems you're telling us. 
here are some of the possible solutions, but here's the one that best solves your problem and why. So instead of saying, oh, you, you, we've come out and you said you wanted a train, great. Well, you've come out and said you wanted better transport links here and here. Well, here's a trade-off between doing that using a train versus a bus. And showing the complexities in the system, not being afraid to show the community that transport is really complicated. There very rarely is one simple solution. Really complicated, yeah. Uh, uh, yet, in many ways, the heart of the city, we simplify it with a simple model whether that be a model, be a computer model, or just what we imagine in our head, which is very almost one-dimensional. I guess you're saying that's part of the great problem. It can be. I mean, all the time you see people wanting to solve the transport problem with, um, my favourite is when they come out with the technical solutions, things like the straddle bus or the hyperloop. You know, transport and congestion is so complex, but don't worry, I have a technology that will solve it for you and I love when it comes out because it's just, once again, that, that fervent wish that the monorail or the Hyperloop will be the thing, the one thing that will solve those problems. And um, unfortunately, that very rarely is the case, <laughs> or at least has not ever been the case so far. Alexa, I love what you're doing, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's Dr. Alexa DeBosk, who is, uh, works with the Public Transport Research Group of the Institute of Transport Studies at Monash University, having written some very, very good stuff with a psychology background rather than just a little bit of engineering, which both are important and both have their place.